saw my GP who said, you need some time off work. You're clearly not very well. Um, you know, see how you get on with HR at work. And if occupational health can do anything, come back to me. If not, um, but it sounds like you're experiencing some very severe anxiety symptoms, and this may well be linked to your work. I was referred by HR to occupational health. I was signed off initially for a month and I felt terrible. I felt really ashamed. I felt stupid. I felt um, a bit of a fraud, but I did know that I couldn't work. So that bit I was very clear on. I knew there was, I had absolutely no capacity to work. I didn't understand why. And I thought I was just being a bit pathetic. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So today's guest is Shona Minson. Shane was a British Academy Research Fellow at the Centre for Criminology at the University of Oxford. Having worked as a criminal and family barrister, she has a particular interest in sentencing and the rights of children impacted by their parents' involvement with the criminal justice system. Her work over the past 10 years has influenced the development of policy and practice on the sentencing of primary carers in the UK. Shona's worked with judiciary across the UK and in Europe and New Zealand to consider how adult sentencing practice can incorporate the observance of children's rights. And her current project explores access to family justice proceedings for women in prison. Delighted to have you here today, Shona. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, Shona. Very nice to meet you and thanks for coming along today. Thank you. So you took a slightly unconventional route to criminology didn't you so can you tell us something about your career pathway yes um so I originally I did a law degree um mainly because at 18 I wasn't really very sure what I wanted to do and it was a choice between law or history and I thought I might become a journalist or something and um I thought if I do want to be a lawyer it saves time if I do a law degree to begin with. So that was my reason for choosing that. And in it, the, the subjects I enjoyed the most were family law and um, criminology and penology. So I then went on and uh, thought I'd be a solicitor, didn't really know what they did, spent a few weeks on work experience and realised I didn't want to be a solicitor. And someone suggested the bar. And so I did mini pupillages, saw what barristers did and much preferred that. Um, so I... Uh, left university and did a year at bar school and then had a pupillage in a set in London doing um, crime and family and I was then taken on as a tenant there and worked as a barrister in those chambers 1kbw for some years Um, initially doing having a mixed practice found myself very much drawn to family work and particularly it was in the days when there was some legal aid so I did legal aid family work and a lot of um, care proceedings so By the time I stopped, my main practice was in care proceedings. Um, I then stopped because I had my first child. And back in those days, it was really difficult to have any time off um, at the bar as you're self-employed, but pay expenses to your chambers. So that was the end of the bar for me at that point, which was very sad. Um, And I had a number of years where I had my children and I did a lot of different jobs. I worked as a family mediator, which is something I'd qualified as when I was working as a barrister. I 
worked for an online business. I worked for my chambers doing marketing and audit. And I um, worked for Citizens Advice as a generalist advisor. And when my youngest child was going to school, I was thinking about what to do. Considered returning to the bar, um, but also wondered about research because I had seen um, people with families manage to make a research career work alongside that. And I had always been really interested in criminology um, and thought about doing a master's way back, but had put it off. And so thought, well, maybe I should do a part time master's and see how that goes. I thought I would probably go into advocacy or campaigning for some kind of reform organisation. And the bit I knew I knew nothing about was research and statistics and how to understand research. So my local university at the time, Surrey, did a part time master's in criminology, uh, criminal justice and social research methods. So I got a place on that. And in my first year was writing an essay on the imprisonment of women and was really shocked by what I found. Um, I was shocked that there was no consideration for children when they were separated from their parents in that situation, because in the family courts, the child's welfare is the paramount consideration of the court. And that kind of got me asking more questions and trying to find answers and realising that the answers didn't exist, that the research wasn't there, that there wasn't an evidence base for what judges should be thinking about. Um, there was no evidence for whether judges did think about these things. And that was when I realised I probably needed to apply to do a PhD so that I could try and fill some of those gaps. And that was how I found myself in a criminology department. Thank you. That, that's quite a complex mosaic of uh, activities there um but but most of them sort of doing something um being active in your your work and and it's fascinating hearing how people make these personal choices because just the other day we were talking to somebody involved in the law who'd made a different choice to you instead of going to the barrister work which they started out at they chose to be a solicitor and anyway that's really by the mm. way i suppose so can you then, so you, you've hinted already at the kind of shock that you received when you looked at the kind of uh, legal framework of uh, women, and particularly women in the criminal justice service. Can you say how your main research interests developed? Yes, so I was aware of this difference between the family courts and the criminal courts and the way children were being regarded when the state was separating a parent from their child and the duty of care and, and all those things. And so I realized that I probably had to look at two things. One was to find out what was happening to children when their mother did go to prison, because if in fact no harm was suffered, then we didn't need to worry. Um, and there was no evidence about that. So we didn't know one way or the other, although you could make a bit of a reasonable guess on that. And I also needed to look and find what judges were thinking about when they sentenced, because there was no point in me saying you're not thinking about this if they said, well, in fact, we are. So I needed to do that bit of research. So that was how I came up with my PhD proposal to look at both those things. And I was really interested in talking to 
a lot there's a lot of research around not so much in the UK but in other countries where people talk to the parent who's in prison or they talk to the person looking after the child and it really mattered to me to talk to the children and to talk to them while they were in the midst of the experience so that we really understood what they were thinking feeling experiencing at that point in time thank you so I can see from the direction you're talking about that one could very quickly get into quite complex uh, emotional areas, both with children and with parents. Is, is that what you found? Yes. Um, so I, I ended up with uh, having gone through the ethics process with permission to interview children whose mother was in prison at the time, to interview adults who were caring for children whose mother was in prison at the time. And sometimes those were the adults of the children I spoke to, but sometimes they were adults who, for whatever reason, the children didn't want to speak or maybe they were too young. And so I still wanted to hear their experiences and that became a really important thread of the research. And I had permission to interview Crown Court judges as well. So I set off to go and have all these conversations um, with people at different points in the process and yes it very quickly um, landed into some incredibly complex emotional territory. And, and did you have any preparation for the emotional impact of, of that work? No not specifically so I had um, I suppose I would say I've, I've fairly good uh understanding of various things from from my own experience of some therapy in the past um from seeing other people go through it from reading a bit um so I thought I had some degree of awareness I has I had as I said I'd been embarrassed doing um child abuse cases so I'd I'd been exposed to difficult material in a professional capacity previously um and to be honest, I think at the bar, you think you're quite hardcore, the things that you see and hear and deal with. So, um, and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd lived life in a family with things going on. So I thought that I was fairly emotionally resilient um, and would would be okay. But I did realise there would be difficult things. What kind of impact did uh, that kind of work have on you then? Well, it turned out it had fairly enormous impact, um, but it took me a very, very long time to realise. So when I started, I mean, you ask about preparation. Sorry, I perhaps didn't answer that fully. But when you put in your ethics application, there's not any. The only question is sort of, will you talk to your supervisor about this? And you say yes. Um, and. You you're not sort of it wasn't suggested that there were other options or that I should be thinking about other things so you think very carefully about the ethics for the people that you're going to talk to and what their debrief strategy is and whether you're going to be leaving them with things that are difficult and how you who you suggest they go on to you think a lot about aftercare for your participants but none for myself so I suppose the habits I got into when I was doing it were that I would you know, I'd be told there was somebody who was willing to talk to me. It was hard finding people because they're very hidden, this population. And I would have 
whatever contact and then go and see somebody and, and quite often it would be a long way from where I lived I might have um, you know had to stay overnight or go somewhere else or drive so usually on my way there I'd be thinking about I had a, a an interview schedule of the questions that I would ask but I remember very clearly the very first interview I did and I arrived far too early so I went and sat on a village green um just going over my notes again and then arrived at the house for the interview and the things that I heard were utterly shocking to me. Um, I think I had known that life would be difficult for these this population. I had not in my wildest dreams imagined the scale of devastation potentially that was being wreaked on people's lives. And so I sat through that interview, as you do as a researcher, with essentially a poker face, but also trying to be as um, open to let to encourage the participants to speak and say as much as they wanted to uh, and not stop any conversations and just let it keep coming. So you're doing a very odd thing of not being able to emotionally engage at all but also trying to make yourself almost that they can transfer onto you all the things they're feeling. And what I found in that first interview and was repeated is that I was often the first person who had asked people about this experience, which I found shocking. And so they were having their first experience of articulating hard things. And I was in this extraordinarily privileged position of being the first person they trusted to hear it. And the combination of that was pretty enormous. Um, and I would drive away from them feeling quite shell-shocked and just going over and over and over and over the things I'd heard. And then, of course, you then have to transcribe the interview. Um, so you listen to it in detail many times to make sure you've got all the words right and then when I finally had all my transcripts you then start analysis of everything and what I find really difficult as well was um, I was interviewing judges at the same time as I was interviewing children you know not literally in the same room but within a week I might have an interview with a judge and I'd have had an interview with a child a few days before and the judges on the whole didn't understand the impacts so would be saying, well, so long as they go to somebody in the family, they'll be fine. And I would be remembering a child sitting, telling me some terrible things um, or a carer telling me that the first person the child had been moved to had, in fact, abused them. And then they'd got moved on to that. And just thinking you're wrong as the judges were speaking to me. But I couldn't say, you know, that wasn't part of my um, my interview strategy. And but I find that I was so emotionally conflicted. And I had to stop doing that. Um, I couldn't interview children and judges or carers and judges within the same time period because I, I just find it impossible. Um, I remember driving home from work one night from the station and hearing on the news that the mother in a family where I'd met the grandmother and aunt who were looking after five boys and the mum had been on remand and was waiting oh no had had been on remand when I interviewed them I then heard that she'd been sentenced and the judge had really taken the children into account and it was a very very serious crime but the judge had known the state that the children were living in and how difficult life was and 
had I thought given a really appropriate sentence and it had been referred um, as being too lenient a sentence and I was driving home and heard on the news that the sentence had been reverse uh, changed and she'd been given double the time in prison and I knew what that or I had a hint of what that meant for that family and I had to pull in at the side of the road to cry um, because it was just so bleak and I was thinking what am I what's the point of what I'm doing here um, when that kind of thing is is going on but it also made me feel there was point in doing it because this stuff was happening so I suppose when I look back in it now I can see that it was an incredibly difficult time emotionally um, but I kept going and I finished the research and I wrote a book and I well I've got my thesis <laughs> passed my PhD I wrote a book I did an impact project I made films for judges and advocates and so it, it looked like there was lots of positive stuff coming from it I got the Joint Committee on Human Rights to hold an inquiry and that was positive in as much as they drew some lines in the sand and said this isn't okay I mean the government didn't do much in response but I did what I'd wanted to do, which was to say, hey, we've got a problem here. Somebody needs to pay attention. And some sentencing policy changed. And so people would be saying to me, oh, it's great what your research has achieved. And I just felt angry all the time and upset. And um, for probably for uh, coming up to this time last year, for about a year, a year and a half before that, if anyone had said to me, do you like your work? I'd have said, no, I hate it. And I thought it was to do with difficulties in academia and whatever. And but I I really was not liking working and I find it very hard during COVID. I did research on children whose parents were in prison during COVID. And I had to bring that to an end sooner than I thought, because I was finding the uh, hearing the stories of those children's experiences was even beyond what I had heard up to that point. And the government really weren't interested in in doing much in the prisons and I find that very hard um so in terms of the emotional impact there was clearly things going on but it was only last Christmas when I finally had two weeks off work which I hadn't had properly since COVID but just because the way holidays and things hadn't happened and um I was very busy I wasn't thinking about work at all and I woke up on Boxing Day thinking oh I feel really happy I haven't felt like this in ages and I thought it's because I'm not at work um I'm going to quit my job I'll give it my notice the first day back in January and that's great I'll go and do something else um and over the next week while I was still off work I slowed down a little in my thinking and thought well maybe I'll see it out to the end of the academic year there's a few papers I'd like to write I'll get things finished but I felt really positive upbeat feeling great and um I came back to work on my first day back after Christmas and it was um I was working at home and I opened up my laptop and immediately started to get palpitations um I felt sick I uh, felt an overwhelming, it wasn't just fear, it was like terror as I opened my emails. I was reviewing a paper that day for a journal and I could almost not make myself read the words because they were about women's imprisonment and trauma. And I pushed through for the whole day and kept working, feeling absolutely dreadful. Got to the end of it and my husband said to me, oh, you know, how was your day? And I said, it, it didn't feel good. 
I had all these experiences and I think maybe there's some link to my work making me feel all these things that to be honest I'd been feeling them all for probably a year and a half but had put them down attributed them to COVID or anxiety from that or family circumstances or just all sorts of different things but it was a really plain no 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 this is about work so I've never I've often been self-employed I've never been off work sick I didn't really know how that worked and uh, my husband said I think you should sign yourself off for tomorrow and go see the GP and I didn't know I could do that. So I, I did that. And I contacted HR as well in the university, really to say I want to give him my notice. That was my plan at that point. Anyway, I saw my GP who said, you need some time off work. You're clearly not very well. Um, you know, see how you get on with HR at work. And if occupational health can do anything, come back to me if not. Um, but it sounds like you're experiencing some very severe anxiety symptoms and this may well be linked to your work um anyway cutting a slightly long story short um I was referred by HR to occupational health I was signed off initially for a month and I felt terrible I felt really ashamed I felt stupid I felt um a bit of a fraud but I did know that I couldn't work so that bit I was very clear on I knew there was I had absolutely no capacity to work I didn't understand why and I thought I was just being a bit pathetic um I had various assessments through occupational health with psychologists and it ended up with them saying that I was suffering from secondary trauma vicarious trauma due to the research I'd been doing for eight nine years by that point and that I needed specialist trauma therapy to try to address it so that I could return to work. Um, and that therapy began and I had a bit of it before I, the idea was that I started it and then was able to return to work with it ongoing to support me through the return to work. It's in fact still ongoing. Um, and once I had that, it was only after I'd had therapy that I was able to go, oh, gosh, I really wasn't very well. And it was completely due to my job. Thank you. That's a, I think that's a brilliant description of uh, the experience you've been been through and of how you had those emotional experiences and sublimated them and had that tremendous creative output um, whilst all the time the emotional um, effect was working away and it sounds as if you needed the break that Christmas break for you to come back and realize what was happening to you yes it was only because I had that two-week break that I was able to see it for what it was um, because I think it's really easy when um you know when th when things don't feel great that we think oh well life's busy or complicated or um, you know, I had an, another example of doing this previously when I, um, it turns out I've got celiac disease, but it wasn't diagnosed till a few years ago. And I just thought that when I hit 40, I got really tired. <laughs> so for years, I put this down to just being a bit old um, and then had a diagnosis, stopped eating gluten and my life completely changed. So I think it's really very easy to, to attribute these kind of symptoms 
to all sorts of different things. And it, I was really fortunate in a way that the break and it being a Christmas break where I was busy with family and, and other things, then I really didn't think about work for two weeks, which was very unusual for me. Um, so I was able to see it much more clearly. Thank you. You can really hear that kind of a bit of a harshness towards yourself, Shona, in this, that sense of, oh, you know, I'm being weak and pull myself together. But I think when you're in a culture where people don't talk about emotions, if you're the person experiencing and in touch with your emotions, then you can stand out and it can seem as though having emotions is unusual when, in fact, you know, just hearing you talk about your work um, pulls up all sorts, sorts of sadness uh, for me listening to to what you're talking about so I can only imagine how painful it would be to really immerse yourself in that story and I suppose I wonder what happens when people don't allow themselves to immerse themselves emotionally in the work because my guess is that that must affect the quality of the research that that comes out there's some there's some inherent truth in there isn't there if you're engaging with stories in a in a real emotional way yeah, I think there probably is. And I think there are probably lots of people doing criminological research or, or, or research akin to it who are doing it because it's not just an academic exercise. It's not just intellectually interesting. Um, it's got some kind of pull and because of our humanity. And one of the things that was said to me quite early on in the therapeutic assessment by a psychologist was that I had two different assessments and both of them said the thing which is we're amazed you've kept going for so long this is no surprise that this is has been the end result um which in a way is a relief but what they said about me was that they thought I was somebody with very high sensitivity and a very high degree of responsibility, feeling a very high degree of responsibility. And I think that describes a lot of researchers. Um, and it's it's therefore an almost kind of lethal position to put yourself in. And there is this thing, like I said in interviews, that when you really are trying to be empathetic so that people can share their stories, you do make yourself, although you're not able or, or we're told you shouldn't as a researcher be responding emotionally, um, which I think is really unhealthy, um, because you can't do that. It doesn't mean that internally you're not experiencing all those emotions and you're trying to suggest that openness to the person um, that you interview so that they they can share with you at a human level. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, we know, um, for instance, psychologists, psychotherapists, we know that hearing painful stories um, evokes a painful response in the listener, which is why psychologists and psychotherapists have to have clinical supervision. Why, why do you think criminology and other kinds of, because criminology is not the only academic research that's concerned with people's pain, is it? Mm. Um, but I wonder why criminology and other forms of academic research haven't considered whether clinical supervision should be an essential part of the job. Great question. And I think it should be um, after my experience. I, I don't know whether it's a bit of a macho culture. I, I think there could be a number of things that play that could be it I certainly used to think at the bar that that was part of it you know there's certainly no clinical supervision there and people are dealing with all kinds of horror um but we'll maybe come on to talk about that in a minute that it's a bit different I think there is also something about uh 
you can feel that what right have I to be affected by this? I am not having to live it. I am not the subject of this injustice. Um, that's the people I'm talking to. So I, you know, my life is is not one that I should be feeling bad about or complaining about or if I'm finding this hard, how much harder is it for this person? And I need to just get over it. So I think there is a lot of that goes on. And and some of those thoughts are okay and some of them are problematic. Um, and definitely ignoring the fact of how we're feeling because we think somebody else is feeling worse is never going to help anybody. Uh, so I think that's probably part of it. But I when I realized what was going on for me and I was looking to find research papers and see what other people were writing about this and there's a little bit has been written um I saw one thing saying that people dealing with this kind of research you know people like you said people's pain average um time for burnout is about eight years uh and people don't tend to return to the field when they leave it um and so I think that that has just been happening without it being a recognized cause and effect that people just take themselves away from the work when they can't handle it anymore. It's such a shame when you think about the amount of skill and expertise that's probably lost from whatever whatever profession. But I'm, I'm just reading uh, Simon Cooper's Chums at the moment, which is about Oxford, Oxford University. And I know that made me wonder whether the the academic culture at Oxford might make it even harder to talk about emotions than it might do in other other university settings I don't know um I don't think it's particularly different I mean I decided to start being a bit open about this in around September which clearly shows the therapy was working <laughs> I was not feeling ashamed about it anymore um and I've talked to colleagues in other universities and I think it's pretty widespread um that if there isn't but if within academia generally we don't have a model of supervision for various um, subjects, then it's not happening and people don't really know quite what to do with what they feel. And people obviously turn to the, the sort of usual things. People will maybe talk to family or friends or a partner in a bit of a debrief. People will drink too much. People will distract Um do whatever it is that they have to do to get through and tell themselves that they should be coping. Thank you. And uh, changing tack a little, you, you've obviously worked as a lawyer previously and lawyers also yeah. hear these kind of stories. Is there a difference in how stories impact on lawyers and criminologists? You know, are the roles so different that they make a difference in terms of the impact? I mean, I can only speak from my own experience on this but it was something that I really thought a lot about um sort of January February last year when I was coming to terms with what had gone on for me and why it had happened and why it hadn't happened when I was doing child abuse work and my own theory on this is that as a so as a barrister or if you were a solicitor as a lawyer you say you're representing I don't know, you're representing your, your client who is accused of the abuse and you take their story from them or you might be representing the guardian acting for the child. And so you are hearing about the child and their injuries and how everybody thinks those injuries were 
caused. Now, there are cases that I still can remember the specific details of the injuries because they were so horrific. Um, but you're, you're collecting that information for a really clear purpose because you're about to go into court and be part of a case, a part of a hearing where the judge is trying to work out what has or hasn't happened and what is in the best interest of the child going forward. So you're just a, a part player in it. You have got one position that you're you know, representing and other people of others, and you will ask them questions about their position and they'll ask your witnesses questions about theirs. And so there's a process, you're going through a very, very set process. And at the end of it, the judge will make a decision about what happens next. And that's your job done. And so in those instances, when I was at court getting information from whoever it was, you're not trying to emotionally take it on for them or let them be as open. You're trying to get very specific information for a very specific purpose. And it doesn't mean that you don't have some sort of build rapport with your client or anything like that. You're still doing that, but it's really different. And you pass the information back, you do something with it and you can see what the result has been. Whereas as a researcher, you're, and also by the time people are in court, they've probably told that story. They've, they've said those things to a few people. So you're not the first person hearing this. Um, whereas as a researcher, as I said, I was often the first person asking these questions or being privileged to hear these stories. And I was just going to take the information. And when I was taking it, I didn't even quite know what I was going to be doing with it because I was going to analyze it with all the other information I got. And you spend literally years looking over this data, thinking about it, writing papers or whatever it is you do with it. And it then goes off into the world in some form, potentially. And you do not know what difference, if any, it will make. Now, I was fortunate in that some of my work has made, you know, I can sort of see a link. But I have to say, I find that really hard to be able to even see because I was finding it so emotionally difficult to do the work that I really was, what is the point in this? What is the purpose? And, and would ask that often. Um, and so it's really hard because you, you don't feel like you're actually serving a purpose in what you do. And, and I certainly got very concerned about, was I re-traumatizing people? And was this all, was research fundamentally pointless if it wasn't going to achieve change, if nobody was listening? So I think it's really different from a job, a social worker, a psychologist, where you take it on, you send it back out, you do something with it. Um, thanks very much indeed, uh, Shona. So what do you think needs to, to change? What would make a difference? Well, one of the first things I would like to see, and that's why I'm doing this podcast, is that we talk about this much more openly. And um, I was really embarrassed about it when it was my experience. I didn't tell my manager at work why I was off. I was able to just HR and someone in the law faculty knew and occupational health knew, but I, I couldn't actually face those conversations because I didn't understand myself what was going on. And it took me a really long time to be able to um understand what was happening, accept what was happening, have a way of articulating it, make my way through it. But 
fortunately I've got to that place and I can now look back and see it was essentially a you know workplace injury that shouldn't have happened and I have found by being open about it on um, social media or in conversation with people I'm having so many conversations with other people who are experiencing this and are struggling and um, I've been referring all kinds of people to the person that I've been having treatment which actually it's probably worth knowing it's been EMDR is the treatment I've had which has been fantastic um so I would like us to be more open about this for there to be no shame or judgment um but I would like people I'm always interested in what can we do upstream I don't want to pull people out of the river I want to stop them being thrown in so um I think on applications to undertake research both at grant stage and in getting ethical approval for work um, there should be questions about research care, researcher care, that it should be built in that if you are doing field work, you have therapeutic supervision and it's and we we don't have an option to do it. It becomes a, a part of recognised good practice um, that as soon as you're doing field work, you are meeting fortnightly, monthly, whatever the appropriate frequency is, and that when you get research expenses, as often you will have some allocation, particularly at, at um, PhD, if you've got funded PhD or if you're a postdoc researcher, in starting out in your career, if you've got a fellowship, you will have some money that's research funds. And I had to um, ask specifically when I returned to work that one of my conditions of returning was that I could use my research funds for therapeutic supervision, because that is not normal. And that is not what's expected, but I think it should be. I know that money is always tight writing grants, but I do think that PIs on projects have a responsibility to their research assistants who are doing those interviews to have built into the grant that they will have therapeutic, proper therapeutic supervision, not just, oh, you can talk to me about what you've done today, or you can talk to someone else in the department, that you actually go to a psychologist who knows what they're doing and you have um, expert supervision through it because that's what I would most like to see is that people never have to experience what I experienced because it was horrible um, and life-changing in in many ways for that period of time so th those would be the main things I'd like um, both funding bodies and universities to understand that this matters. Question what responsibility do you think lies with the university versus that of the uh, individual so I had to argue pretty hard to get my um, therapy funded and I think it's fairly exceptional to do that but um, I I suppose I thank my lawyer background for um, giving me tenacity in those situations and going well no this is reasonable and it is appropriate and this is workplace injury um, but there was also, you know, a misunderstanding that it should be then a taxable benefit. Um, and I had to, you know, draw attention to the right bits in the HMRC guidance, which would be if I'd fallen and broken my hip and they wanted to give me fancy physio, that would be a taxable benefit. But actually, if you're being given repair for something caused by your work, then it is not a taxable benefit. And so I think the universities have an, a responsibility to understand um, what the job of research actually involves and what the risks are and what the harms can be. 
um, and take it upon themselves to do the right thing. When, you know, if there was a spillage in a, in a lab and somebody was harmed, they would do the right thing and deal with medical expenses. And I think this is, this is similar. So I think the university has a responsibility for that. I think the university has a responsibility. And when we talk about the university, we're talking about individuals in all sorts of different departments. I think that ethics committees should be looking to see more concern about researcher care, should have an expectation of that and put it into their pro formas so that it gets filled in. I think that finance people should, um, who gatekeep research funds, should see them as being well used if they're used for therapeutic supervision and that being part of an expectation. So I think there's all those sorts of responsibilities in terms of thoughtfulness and some policies. And I think as an individual, um, once we become, if we're not having conversations about this kind of thing, people aren't aware and they suddenly find themselves a PhD student or a, a, an early career person finds themselves in the horrible position unexpectedly. Um, but I think if we are having the conversations, then heads of department need to be flagging this up for people, even at the application stage. And when they start on research saying, have you done this and this and have you, you know, worked out who's these are the people we would suggest you go and see for therapeutic supervision. This is who I go to see and make it just a really normal part of research life. Um, and I think individuals have a responsibility to take it seriously not try to skimp on it um, and, and view it as a, something that will make them better researchers and give longevity as well, because I fully intended to leave. Um, I, I could not see how I could return and now I'm back and you know working on new research and mm -hmm. with projects in the pipeline and excited by it again and, and loving my job. Um, and I think it would have been really sad for me if I had left thinking I hated my job because I, I didn't. So I think as individuals, we do need to be a bit bullshit maybe about what we need and expect. So I, you know, I've sort of said what my conditions are for, for going forward and they were agreed. And I think we need to prioritise our well-being um, because I think it's really easy to feel that we don't matter and the people that we're researching matter the most. And of course they matter, but we also matter. Thank you. It reminds me, I think, once there are a couple of cases where the prison service was sued by prison officers. I think one was from Brendan, where because people have been involved in therapeutic work and hearing really difficult stories as a consequence of the, the nature of the service that they'd then um, suffered a workplace injury like you say so it's it's about taking care of people isn't it and preventing these kind of like lasting trauma yes. at the end of the end of a career for for people yes and I was really fortunate when I was referred to occupational health that we had a new head of occupational health in the university who'd actually come from within the prison service and so on our first meeting which was a very difficult thing for me and I was very nervous and I was feeling really uncomfortable about having to even talk about what I had you know what was causing this and she just said I've been in prisons I know what the scope of the things you will have heard will be you don't need to tell me anything which was amazing um to to be treated with that kind of understanding from the off um and and I I can't remember if it was her, but somebody at some point along all of these conversations has told me about in whatever service they're in, 
there is not an option of so it's not like a that it wasn't in psychology or or as a counselor or whatever where you have this is just mandatory everybody does it it was something a bit more akin to research where it was being brought in as a new thing and what they decided was that it was just expected uh people were told here's here's when you're going to be having it this is being booked into your diary because people can feel very embarrassed about needing it and don't want to have to say oh yeah I'm finding this a bit hard whereas if you just make it this is what we all do and great if you're not finding it hard you can go along and talk about whatever it is you need to talk about or have a very short appointment but by making it something that everybody is doing just as a normal practice I think that can really take the embarrassment out of it for people yeah we did that with the prison officers in the FENS unit we we said that everybody had to have it, it was mandatory which then meant there were some people who were obviously a bit resistant to that but it meant that actually put people could engage with it and actually most you know people were were clamouring for it after a, a period of time because they've got so used to it. I think I did also see a lawyer posting on LinkedIn as well about it being part of what their firm Great. offered because people are, even the admin staff are, are you yeah. know, writing material and looking at material that's very, very difficult to to interact with. Yes. So Shona, what advice would you give to new researchers start, starting out in researching aspects of the criminal justice system or doing any other sort of um, challenging people focused research? Uh, I would suggest that they have conversations very early on with their supervisor or, you know, whatever their structure is about what kind of therapeutic supervision they can access. Um, I can imagine it could be a very difficult conversation to have if you're in a department with somebody who doesn't think that's necessary. But I think if you're if you're keen and at the start of a career and want it to continue, then it's an important thing to do. And um, even though it may be difficult, I'd say it is worth trying to work out how that can happen. So I had a conversation with somebody recently who was dealing with a great deal of traumatic material and so I suggested they contact their funders and ask if they could have funding for some sessions and they got a yes and were able to access it. So I think sometimes doors open quite easily, but you do need to ask. So I would say keep it on the agenda, keep checking in and make sure that you are taking care of yourself and that. Um, yeah, and I think probably we need to have more conversations across the profession about what it is to be a researcher. Um, a research academic, what that means, what we bring to it of ourselves, what we're allowed to show of ourselves in it, what we give of ourselves in the process. And just understanding that, I suppose, almost the transactional nature of all of those interviews so that we do better understand what's going on for us emotionally. Um, so, yes, I think if if people are new in the profession anything they can do to access any of that information would be good so as well when people are starting out in research they're often gravitating towards a story or theme that has some resonance for them aren't they you know sometimes that that might be because of a job that they've had where there's been an obvious theme of something to explore but sometimes people are, are, are coming up with those themes because of their own personal history so I guess it's kind of like ripe for opportunities for people to to 
be in touch with quite painful material um, from their own past as well as the, the stories that they're hearing from others. Yes, I think that's probably right. So you mentioned, Shona, that you, as you're still having therapy or therapeutic supervision. How, what, what else do you do to protect your emotional well-being? Are there any other strategies that others could learn from in terms of what you do? Um, I have put, for now anyway, some boundaries around research, what I'm going to research and what I'm not going to research. Uh, I think previously I'd have thought if there's a... if you know, I'm very much a person, if there's a problem, I, if I see a need, I want to, and I think I can do something about that, then I want to get involved with that. And it doesn't really matter what the personal cost is. Whereas the next project I'm doing, I'm going to be accessing secondary data and I'm going to be talking to professionals who are a step removed from the issue itself. And that's my way of protecting myself for my my next research project. Um, and I don't know if that those boundaries will change as I go on, but I'm certainly being much more proactive in thinking it's all right to set some boundaries to understand what my capacity is and to not push myself beyond that um, in a professional setting. There's no failure in that. Uh, it just makes good sense. Um, I have, like everybody else, got very into cold water swimming. I mean, I've always liked swimming, I've always liked cold water, but it was really interesting that this time last year, when I was not at my least well, I suppose, it became almost a survival mechanism. And it was, I described it to people as being like extreme mindfulness, because if you're in really cold water, you can literally think of nothing else but keeping breathing. And so you can't think about all the things that are worrying you or stressing you all you're thinking about is trying to keep your breathing steady and so I actually started swimming on boxing day last year and carried on through the winter um and I read a really interesting book about it's actually called the well-gardened well-gardened mind I think but it's about the link between gardening and trauma and um psychological good health but it quoted somebody who talked about how uh when we have a trauma experience that being embodied is really important to actually recognize our physical state and connect with that and it made me wonder if that was why so many people took up outdoor swimming during covid when people were going through all sorts of traumatic experiences but there's something about being in cold water and feeling you know my toes my fingers recognizing that i am this whole self so it sounds a bit daft but that actually and I think what I've learned from that is that whatever, whatever it takes, do it. Um, that thing that makes you feel better. Perfect note to finish on. Thank you very much, Shona. <laughs> a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Thanks very much indeed, Shona. Thank you.